Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. There may not be a better narrative writer in journalism today than Evan Osnos of The New Yorker, from the war in Iraq to eight years in China, and for the last eight, covering our own country. Osnos has told large stories through the eyes of everyday people. Now he's written a riveting new book called Wildland, The Making of America's Fury, that explains so much about our divided country and how we got here. We sat down recently to talk about it and his own fascinating journey. Here's that conversation. Evan Osnos, it's it's great to see you, an old friend, especially here at the Institute of Politics. First time I've had a chance to actually sit down with someone and have a face-to-face podcast and conversation in a long time. So I'm, I'm glad that it's you. Thank you, David. It's fun to be here. So, you know, I always begin these podcasts by probing people's stories because I'm interested in people's stories mm. and, and, and we, we rarely get them. But in your case, it seems most important because your bio is sort of a prologue to your latest, uh, your latest work, uh, Wildland, the Makings of America's Fury, because it's set in various places that were important to you yeah. in your life. So let's just let's start there. Hmm. And um, I was I really wanted to focus on your grandparents hmm. who have you know starkly different stories. But uh, tell me about your, your dad was born in India. Yeah, he was a Jewish refugee born in India. Uh, so it's always funny when people meet him and he, they say, uh, he says, I was born in India. His birth certificate actually says, cast Polish, because he <laughs> they were Polish refugees during World War II. And then he was born there, and then they made their way to the United States like so many Jewish families. And Do you ever hear any stories about what led, I mean, what led them to flee and what they experienced in Yeah, in they Poland? were in Warsaw when the Nazis invaded, and they had this kind of hedra, this odyssey through a whole series of countries. Uh, it's They were in Hungary and Turkey, and they were eventually in Iraq and eventually made their way to India because it was controlled by the Brits. And so that was a safe place to be. And then they had this process of applying for refuge in various places. And at one point, they were supposed to go off to Japan. There were a lot of Jewish refugees settling Hmm. in Japan, believe it or not, even though it was an Axis power. And they ended up coming on a troop ship to the United States. And my father has a brother who was 12 years older. And so his brother had lived through all of that experience. Robert Osnos had lived through everything in Warsaw, everything in India. And I mean, like every story of this kind has just almost cinematic drama beyond anything a screenwriter could manage. And yet in their own way, when they got to the United States, they sort of put the lid on it. You know, it's so interesting because my dad, uh, I've talked about this a lot here, but my dad was a, uh, a refugee from the pogroms. And uh, I know from talking to other people, his cousins and so on, um, how dreadful it was. And I would he yeah. would only talk very, very rarely about his home being blown up, for example, uh, when he was a child, and uh, and never talked about it. And uh, uh, you know, I, I think that there was a, there there was a wanting to put it behind him. There also was, I think, some PTSD yeah. associated with that. Imagine being a young child. He, I remember him once telling me his, he and his father would go out and step over pe- dead bodies. You know, they would go to get bread, and there'd be bodies in the street and yeah. so on. How does a child process that? Although, in your book, you talk about what's going on in neighborhoods right around here in mm. Chicago. Yeah. And and you see young young children are having to to experience a version of that 
you know, uh, murder in the streets and so on. Yeah, I sort of became very conscious of the sheer span of possible experience as an American, the idea that you can be a kid a few blocks from here, growing up in an environment where there really is a daily reminder of the fragility of human life. I mean, it is not abstract, and it has an impact on everything that you do. And in a very remote way, I think that lurks in the background of my family story, at least my awareness of the fact that I am this extraordinary beneficiary to have grown up in peaceful prosperity. I don't want to overstate the terms of the first of the second half of the 20th century, but that was essentially what it was compared to everything that was coming before in our family story. Yeah. So your dad became a journalist. Well, let's talk about your mom's family first because I want to, because your grandfather was a diplomat. Yeah. My mother's parents, uh, Albert and Carol Scherer were diplomats and my, they were from Chicago and uh, my grandfather had been in the Air Force and then joined the State Department. He was sort of very much of a of a classic type of the post-war American <clears throat> kind of what we would now call um, <clears throat> what we would now call the elites. He was went to Yale and then went off and joined the government mm-hmm. and worked in government service for the rest of his life. And so my mother was born in Morocco when they were based there for the State Department. Mm-hmm. And so then my parents ended up, when they eventually met many years later, there was this way in which they were two completely different families. The Scherer family were these wasps from Chicago, and then my dad's family were these Jewish refugees from India. Yeah. Well, and just to top it off, they met in Vietnam during the Vietnam right. War. Yeah. Uh, your dad became a journalist. Yeah. And your mom was there working for a, a kind of a, a support organization for for troops there. Yeah, it was essentially a nonprofit law firm that represented pr- troops with civilian defense. And my father was there for the Washington Post. Yeah. And so the two of them met in Saigon during the war, what was then Saigon, now Ho Chi Minh City, and came back and got married at a small town in Michigan. Um, yeah. But I think I grew up with that very distinct sense of that felt normal to me, this almost ludicrous combination of American influences. That was, that's what it meant to be an American. Yeah. I guess what also seemed normal to you was becoming a journalist. Yeah. That was not my most imaginative career path. I mean, I, <laughs> I, as you know, I'm a very lucky guy to have been born into a family that was reading and writing and journalism was just kind of second nature. You, you grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut. And I only note that I put a pin in that because that's part of the story of your of your book. But the Greenwich, Connecticut that you grew up in is a lot different than the Greenwich, Connecticut that exists today. Yeah, it, it was a, a kind of a marvelous place to be a kid. I mean, it's a rich suburb of New York City. And I went to the public schools there and they were amazing public schools. And it was also the thing that I think would surprise people from the outside is that there was a period of time in the say 40 years ago, 30 years ago, when it really, I don't want to overstate the case, but it was not as if every house was somebody who belonged to the hedge fund and private equity royalty of America. It was actually a little bit more diversified than that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, And that's, of course, part of the story that you tell in your book is that it did become that sort of the global capital of capital. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. It became known as the hedge fund capital of the world. Yeah. And, but, you know, interestingly, when I was a kid, to give, you know, a sort of specific illustration of what that was like, in Greenwich in the early 80s, the biggest economic presence in town was a guy named Reg Jones, who was the chairman and CEO of General Electric. And he was the most influential businessman in America. He had advised Reagan and Carter mm-hmm. and everybody. And I looked it up, and at the peak of his powers, he was making a million dollars a year, which was a lot of money, yeah. but not today. Not today. Not and in not Greenwich, even, yeah. And not yeah. And in the years since then, things the curve sort of went vertical in terms of executive compensation. We're going to talk about that. Um, you went to Harvard, which I'm told is a very fine school in the East. <laughs> so uh, I'm told. Yeah. And you you walked into a classroom and became instantly interested in China. Yeah, that had absolutely no deep roots whatsoever. I just was seized by it. I, Why? Because I knew nothing about it and because there'd been nothing about it in my 
in my high school curriculum. I, you know, my family, we had, my parents had studied Russian. We'd lived in Moscow for a while when I was a kid, when my dad was a reporter. So I wasn't going to do anything involving Europe. I mean, mm-hmm. I wasn't going to do anything involving Russia. And I got interested in China because it was vast. And it was, at that point, frankly, not a subject that people were all that interested in. In Washington, it was kind of esoteric yeah. you know, to learn this. So language. this was your big act of defiance huh? by <laughs> yeah, choosing that's how I, China over Russia. Some people get a tattoo. You know, I, <laughs> I studied China. And then you took this gold-plated Harvard diploma, Harvard degree, I should say. And uh, and you end up as a as a uh, photo department intern right. at the Exponent Telegraph, which is a paper in the teeming metropolis of Clarksburg, West Virginia. This is true. Yeah, and my roommate I remember was going off for a Rhodes scholarship, and I remember thinking, I don't know what I maybe I've made an odd choice, but I couldn't have been happier. I was just so I, I got this idea basically when I was an undergraduate. I got really interested in photography and particularly the tradition of photography, documentary photography. People like Walker Evans, mm-hmm. who did the great book, Let Us Now Praise Famous Man. And so I started applying for jobs as a as a photographer. You had been an intern at, at my alma mater, the Chicago Tribune. Exactly. While you were a student at Harvard. While I was a student, I was a summer intern. Yeah, at the Tribune. And they'd said, you know, you, you can probably come back. And I said, well, I, I kind of want to do something else for a little while. And uh, so I started applying for these jobs as a photographer. I was a pretty terrible photographer, I should concede. You were, your photography led you to writing. Huh? Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. a pretty clear path. So tell me about Clarksburg then, this, the, the town that you, that you lived in for in the late 90s. Yeah, it was a, a fascinating place to come to. I mean, it was 1999 when I got there, and Clarksburg was a city, a small city, 16,000 people in the northern part of the state. And it had thrived in a period after World War II. It had these factories, glass factories. And in so many ways, it was physically, if you go to it, David, it looks like a place that was built with the intention of being a big deal. Yeah, It has these kind of cornice buildings downtown. Yeah, you describe these elegant hotels that used to exactly. exist. And- yeah, gorgeous. I mean, some of them, and they had some of the first phone lines in the state. And and then it was almost as if at a certain point, the needle got lifted off the record and it just fell silent. And that was basically because of the larger economic forces, which we know, which have to do with the decline of the industrial economy, particularly in Appalachia. But the effect was that this place that had been moving and had a real sense of itself began to lose that. And But it's worth capturing what it was when I got there because there had been a billboard that hung in town that said, you have a right to be proud. And all of the sort of physical indicators around the town were of a place on the make. And I, I, I kind of liked that. It was, I mean, just the newspaper where I worked was extraordinarily ambitious. I mean, it was this little newspaper that put out two full-fledged newspapers every day a morning, not an edition, a full-fledged newspaper in the morning and in the evening for a town of 16,000 people. And do they still exist? They do, which is kind of amazing. And they exist... Because that's not the norm in the country. And in fact, you know, there's been this die-off, really, of newspapers over the last 15 years. And part of the reason to to really mention it is that most people actually don't even know it. I mean, the data is extraordinary, even though we talk about the die-off of local newspapers. There was a survey done not too long ago that found that actually most Americans think local newspapers are probably doing okay because they don't pay much attention to it. But actually, it's just been gutted. This small paper, though, the Exponent Telegram, has been bought by a local owner and continues on. And in, and it's thrilling to see that it's continued on. But it's under tremendous economic pressure. And that limits everything it can do. So you spent, uh, what, a year and a half there or something like that? Less than that. And then yeah, I went and then you then you uh, hot-footed back to... Mother Tribune, as we used to call it. That's right. Um, Metro reporter. Yeah. So you abandoned photography. You you came to some sort of realization that probably this is not my future. Yeah. Well, I think I realized, you know, I'm not particularly courageous. And the great photographers are always right up against the ramparts of history. And I'm sort of a little bit more of a, maybe in the press box of history, if that (laughs) makes a little more sense. Yeah. Well, we'll talk, you know, that's interesting because I never thought of... uh, Iraq 
in the middle of the war as the press box. But we, we, we'll get to that. Because you, you spent a couple of, first of all, when you were here, I know you covered a young politician with whom I was acquainted yeah, named Barack Obama, but not in his finest hour. No, uh, it was arguably his most embarrassing hour, as he would put it. I mean, I was, I was a, a very junior reporter on the Metro desk. And Barack Obama, of course, as you remember, was running for Congress, Congress yeah. uh, in the first district on the south side. Against, against Bobby, Bobby Rush, Rush, who was a longtime incumbent, former Black Panther, very yeah. well embedded in the in the community, but yeah. had just run a bad race for mayor. And I he think Obama beaten. sensed vulnerability there. He did. He smelled some sort of blood in the water. And he said, well, I can go Turns out it was his own blood. <laughs> well, and the thing was, if you went out on the trail in that year, you would have seen somebody who had, as you saw, these kind of amazing political powers. I mean, there was a way in which even a Barack Obama on the way to getting crushed was still an amazing person to see on the campaign trail. But that was not what it took to get elected. And those were somewhat non-intersecting You also wrote about something powers. that I was um, well acquainted with as someone, because his next race, I was his, I was his strategist. Right. And uh, I very much, I, I remember I, I had a fundraiser for him at my apartment. And every night he would call me from the trail and he would tell these vivid stories. Uh, he, like you, being a great storyteller about people he met and how moving it was and the things they were struggling with. And then he got in a room of, 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 of donors. It wasn't like a huge hitters, but. Right. And I think he thought he had to impress them with his grasp of. Facts uh, and figures. Facts and figures. And it was just really dry. I, I grabbed him after the, that and I said, you know, every night you tell me these stories and they're so moving. Yeah. I said, that, why can't you tell some of those? Hmm. And, um, and he did start integrating them in. And, yeah. and actually, by the time we got to the Democratic Convention in the summer of 2004, that was he, you could see he had evolved as a storyteller. And that was exactly the, there was a sort of competition you could see within him between the technocratic impulse to say, I'm going to sit down and tell you every policy in and out, and this extraordinary capacity to try to describe a, a sort of moral picture or to put it in human terms and to actually diffuse some of the pomposity of politics. And he had these two things. And I remember once being at a, at an event on here, not too far from here on the South side at, uh, it was a uh, retirement home, and he was giving a speech on a Sunday afternoon. And the person next to me, a guy, fell into a deep, deep sleep, like a really <laughs> audible sleep. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to put this in my story when I write about it. But uh, what was fascinating was that he could do that. And at the same time, though, the same guy, five years later, was electrifying in front of the Democratic yeah. National Convention. Yeah. And he had to kind of master his instrument a little yeah, bit. Yeah, no, there's no there's no question about it. We're gonna take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. You went on to be uh, in two thousand one to become the New York City uh, bureau chief uh, to the New York City Bureau. I don't know if you were the chief of the bureau, whether there were other people in the there bureau. There were other people, yeah, but I was a correspondent in the bureau. Yeah, um, you were 24. Yeah, yeah. Pretty remarkable. It was a nice job. It was kind of, and I got there in the summer of 2001, and, I, and my job was, you know, cover the eastern seaboard of the United States. And so, which, you know, is one of those wonderful things that barely exists anymore as journalism. But I think that experience... Of, ha of being the Chicago Tribune correspondent in New York is one of those magical experiences as a reporter because you don't cover the tiniest details right. of what's happening you in the city You just look council. for great stories. Yeah, you just look for great stories. Yeah. I mean, I remember going up to New Hampshire to write about a group of guys, and it's in its own way this was kind of a I guess prescient, I didn't realize that at the time, to what was happening, that these were guys who wanted to secede from the union. And so I was so I was kind of attracted in some ways to these slightly oddball elements of American politics that tell you something deeper. And they were voicing all kinds of bizarre interpretations of American history and so on. But it was fascinating. That, that used to be uncommon. 
Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, they were the fringe. Yeah, then. exactly. Uh, but and then a few months after you got there came 9-11. You were headed to West Virginia. Right. Uh, yeah. To cover something. You came back. What did you find? It was a a city that was for that brief moment, as we all remember, that kind of almost like a suspension of of the usual New York way in which there was a reflexive suspicion. Nobody was flipping the, everybody, anybody no, else the, off. The and, bird was kind yeah. of retired for the moment. <laughs> and I remember, actually, I'd, I'd been away for a day after the attacks. I came back on the 12th because I'd been halfway to West Virginia. And when I came back, this neighbor on the balcony across from mine, across the back, had come out and said, oh, thank God you're back. We'd never spoken to each other before, but we'd kind of seen each other in that sort of rear window way that you do when two buildings are facing each other. And she said, ah, I thought when you didn't come home last night that something terrible happened. Uh, And then that was the beginning of this whole new period in American life that was not that. It was not this kind of blissful suspension of of suspicion. and, And a recognition of community. I mean, what that did for that brief moment, and I was working in a, I was working on a campaign there at that time. The Mm. election was that day. Right, of course. And was suspended. What you saw was people who, whatever their differences, they were unified in their their experience. And the recognition recognition that they were attacked for being Americans, and therefore being American became something they shared in a big way. And being New Yorkers became something they shared. And all of America kind of rallied around the city it also changed your life because what followed was war yeah yeah fundamentally changed it and as i mentioned you then shipped out for iraq so what's with the i didn't want to i wasn't as courageous as the photographers because your first assignment was to sort of embed with the forward marine unit there well part of it was you know there there are as you discover when you embed with a military unit, there are always ways to go further and further forward. And at a certain point, I sort of had to say to myself, okay, I'm interested in being really close, but not the absolute closest. I leave that for the great photographers of our, of our generation. And, but no, the truth was I was drawn to it. I mean, I was drawn to trying to understand, this was the central fact of now my adult life was this confrontation between the United States and and what we now know in retrospect was a really poorly described kind of abstract enemy. But at the time, you put yourself back in that mindset. It was 2002 when I went overseas. And in fact, at the last, I'd been told, hey, pack your bags, you're going to go to Afghanistan. And you're going to cover the, the Afghanistan war over the Christmas holiday when the big reporters go home. And then at the last minute, they said, actually, you're not going to Afghanistan. You're going to go to Kuwait because it looks like we're going to go to war there. And, you know, in retrospect, David, this is sort of not a proud fact, but a a recognition of how it is when you're a reporter that way. At the time, I wasn't thinking about, is this the right war? Is this a legitimate war? Are we making smart choices? Sort of have your face up against the coal face. And what you're thinking about is, how how do I not get shot? And how do I try to render this accurately? And then you'd come back to the U.S., for a break from Iraq, and people would be saying to you things like, "So, what do you think? Is this a legit? Is this the right war?" And you think to myself, "My God, I have no. I've, I'm like a, I'm like a cosmonaut in a capsule, and they're asking me about the shape of the cosmos. I have no idea." <laughs> you know, your dad was a fine war correspondent uh, yeah. for the Washington Post. Did you talk to him about how to cover this? Did he give you any insights, or had you heard anything from him in the past that? you carried around in the recesses of your head about how to do this? Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, we we had conversations sort of both passive and active. I mean, I grew up really, really lucky to be the son of Peter Osnos, who was a reporter for the Washington Post in, in Vietnam, and kind of that was a formative experience for him. And so I think I did grow up with a sense that the most honorable thing you can do in that situation is just try not to get it wrong. Just try to get the facts right and try to render what you see in front of you accurately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what I tried to do in some ways. And how did it affect you? Uh, I know your sister was quoted somewhere as saying that she thought that it had a, a big impact on you, that you, you had some sort of PTSD when you came back that you were... Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, it was... Um, the period that I was in Iraq, I was sort of in and out of there for the next two years. And and I ended up coming out of there in 2005 for the last time. But that was a period, you'll remember, when reporters were... Have, we had this shrinking... 
territory we could we could cover. In the beginning, you could go all over the country, and by the end, you were confined to these armed houses with guards out front, and it was a dangerous time. There were kidnappings, and people were getting killed, and I think it did make me aware of the degree to which how much was I really going to be able to do in the Middle East. I didn't speak Arabic in any useful way, and I spoke Chinese, and I kind of realized... I think I should leave this work here to people who have made it their life's work. And there was people like Anthony Shadid, who you remember, who was a great correspondent in the Middle East. And um, so I, I did. I came home and I think I was, I was shaken up partly by the physical experience, but also by the realization of this plummeting American performance. Yeah. Had you seen, presumably you saw death, you saw injuries, you saw, had you seen that before? I hadn't seen that before. I think I it was really in, in Iraq that I came to see that for the first time. And it was accompanied, I, I think it was also accompanied by this also unpleasant discovery of the degree to which I felt like the United States was lying to me. Mm-hmm. My own government. I mean, this is an. I, I would go to the briefings that they would have. What was called the Coalition Provisional Authority, which was the Bush administration's yeah. local occupying government. And I remember that the spokesman would get up there and say things that were so completely, ridiculously at odds with what we were seeing out in the country. Saying, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but things are getting better every day. This number of new households were brought onto the public water system, and that honestly was the thing that was most transformative because I had gone into there with more or less the assumption that what we're doing is probably, I don't know all the ins and outs, I would think to myself, mm-hmm. but I, I, I assume that this is the kind of thing that makes sense. And of course, it was a catastrophe. And there was a period of time as reporters in Iraq where we had this very strange distance between the conversation at home because we were all saying on the ground, you'd get together at the end of the day and you'd all say to each other, this is a disaster. I mean, everything that is going wrong. And then you'd go home and people would say, well, we're going to turn the corner. It's Don Rumsfeld was talking about bitter enders. It's the last people here. And, and then it'll, everything will be fine. And I found myself increasingly demoralized by that. That's honestly the thing that was most alarming. You mentioned that you thought you ought to take the, you, you were fluent in Mandarin, that you wanted to take your talents and apply those and you did you 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 went and uh went to the beijing bureau of the tribune yeah ultimately the new yorker you spent eight years there yeah i spent eight years in china and that's one of those assignments that is in some ways i suppose like a the thing you can do when you're a young person before i wasn't married i didn't have kids yet and i worked more or less you know 20 hours a day and Mm -hmm. i just loved it everything i mean i read everything i could i went everywhere i could and I think I had a house plant that died. You uh, being fluent obviously was a great help to you. W- was it also uh, a concern for the government there? They were always very wary of reporters, particularly if you were somebody who, and there was a cohort of us who were a little bit more expeditionary. We wanted to go out and report for long periods of time, and you could work with less support. I didn't have to live in a compound with other journalists the way you had 10 years or 20 years earlier. I lived in a little house in the center of town. And at one point, I mean, it had these wonderful things like the Tribune. I, I once said, I want to go out and just walk for a month or so and just see what happens. And and they said, okay, sure. And and so I went out and just started walking with a friend of mine, a Chinese friend of mine in Sichuan province. And we'd run into cops and we'd run into people and they'd say, you know, what the hell are you doing here? And then the local government. And so that was just a glorious moment. And that period, I have to say, is now over, David. I mean, as a reporter in China, you're really constrained. I go back and forth now doing stories now and then, and that period is very emphatically closed. Yeah. Well, I mean, I want to ask you about that because, I mean, first of all, you wrote a very, very uh, well-reviewed book called Age of Ambition, Chasing Fortune, Truth, and Faith in the New China. So just give me a word on that, won the National Book Award. Give me the underlying sort of premise about the sort of growing individualism in China, even in this sort of rigid authoritarian system. That was the biggest discovery when I got there was that you have this dominant authoritarian government. The Communist Party presides over everything. And yet within that, you had this wildly, sometimes almost madcap pursuit of individual goals. So you would run into people in little tiny towns in the middle of nowhere who would be embarking on these 
on these projects to say, I'm going to build a factory to produce, you know, lawn chairs for American suburbanites, places they'd never seen, people they'd never see. So there was this energy and it reminded me of a very American thing, a piece of our history. This particularly, I, you know, I've always read a lot of Mark Twain and it was a, an element of the Gilded Age and the sort of second half of the 19th century where you had this period in American life where it was to a fault, almost anything goes. And that period resonated with me in China. And so I started writing about it in, in those terms. How, how about human rights? I know you met with dissidents. Yeah. Uh, sometimes to the chagrin of of uh, of the government yeah um so there's this there's that story and then there's this other story and i felt like you have to put them in total juxtaposition you have to put them right side by side it bothered me that there were sort of two kinds of books at the time and i'm oversimplifying but i think people who follow the topic will recognize it there was the sort of pro-business everything's fine in china book and then there was you know only focusing on human rights abuses and i said no you got to put them both in there i want to talk about human rights abuses so i spent a lot of time with dissidents people like ai weiwei and chen guangcheng and others at the time who were really sort of at the point of encounter with government, particularly state violence. And then at the same time, I wanted to capture this dynamism because those two pieces of it were in contest with one another. It wasn't clear which side of the Chinese political character was going to prevail. So let me ask you about that, because you left just as uh, Xi Jinping was right. was uh, was become uh, went, came to power. I mean, you almost at the same time. Yeah, it was a coincidence, uh, though, David. Yes, I know. It wasn't at his invitation. <laughs> uh, so, um, and the case that he's making to the world is that his brand of authoritarianism is actually consistent with, you know, rapid economic growth, that that sort of command and control version of, I guess, capitalism right. it, it is is the way of the future and that democracies are are uh are inadequate to the pace of uh today's times um to, how has china changed in the last uh 8 years under chi i mean how different would your book be today it's gotten in in a whole vast range of ways, much more closed. I mean, there's just not very many countries in the world today, for instance, that have a more restricted internet relationship to the outside world than they did eight or 10 years ago. That's just one measure of how much China has been moving backwards in time. And, you know, in so many ways, the what Xi Jinping has represented in the mind of the world was already in train. It was already happening. That's the interesting thing. By the end of Age of Ambition, I remember people were saying to me, folks in the China world who I encounter in sort of studying China would say, you know, do you feel like the arc of the book? Because it ends on a somewhat bleak note where I remember saying it's it was so many ways in which it was getting closed. And then Xi Jinping arrived and he was the guy who was going to drive that even further. And the thing that I think that I totally misjudged was the role of technology mm -hmm. because there was a feeling at the time that technology was going to be a liberating force. And you saw it on the ground in China that you know, everybody had a Weibo account, the equivalent of essentially a social media account. And that felt like it with all these little pinpricks in the image and the power of the state. And in fact, what happened was that technology was marshaled in service of authoritarianism. And that I did not understand. In some ways, it's a global story totally. that we're contending with everywhere. We don't have our arms around all the implications of technology, which is moving in exponential yeah. fashion. And uh, I mean, this is a concern for democracies. Um, Very much so. And I, I often find myself returning to this principle. I keep seeing it over and over again in American life, the ways in which these tools that we create and we create almost sort of beautiful tools in the technical sense. They're so powerful. They do the thing we want them to do so well that they end up producing catastrophic consequences. That applies in finance. It applies in technology. It applies in gun technology. And then, and then part of the catch-up is that we don't acknowledge the full implications of these tools after we make them. We just sort of venerate them on the, on the abstract. Well, and as we were discussing before we started rolling, they create powerful powerful companies and and and, yeah. and industries that then become lobbying forces in Washington fighting 
efforts to try and control this. We're seeing this now yeah. uh, with Facebook. So you you came back to the U.S. in 2013. You, I should point out you met your wife in China, in, in yeah. also in keeping with the family tradition. <laughs> That's true. And, Sarah uh, Beth Berman from from Newton, Massachusetts, had gone over there, and we met in Beijing. And uh, and uh, you you now have a couple of kids, but. Yeah, you came back, and you actually did in the U.S. It strikes me you became a national correspondent for the New Yorker. You did in the U.S. sort of what you did in China, in the sense that you wandered around the country trying to figure out what was going on. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and that's in some ways uh, the 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 product of that is this book. I mean, that's obviously true. you were writing um, pieces for the New Yorker along the way, and I remember talking to you. In 2000 and maybe the summer of 2015. Mm, yeah. And you were talking That's about right. Trump. That's right. And how much you thought he was a threat to win. And uh, uh, so when you talk about the wild land, the making of America's fury, uh, talk a little bit about that and and why, um, why you chose to go back to these places where you, that were formative in your life. Yeah. And what were the changes that you observed and what did they tell you about uh, the trajectory of the country? Well, I think I, I realized when I got to Washington that if I wanted to figure out what was happening there, I really wasn't going to find those answers there in Washington. And I, I think it's you, you, you rely on the tools you have. And in, and in my mind, there was something of value of getting away from front page kinds of political news because I couldn't figure out what I could add in any meaningful way. Gary Hart once told me that uh, Washington is always the last to get the news. And it was one of the <laughs> smartest things anybody's ever sounds told me. Total, well, that, honestly, the theory of this whole book was essentially that Washington is this kind of roiling thing downstream. And I wanted to go to the headwaters and figure out, I mean, in just to trace the river back up into the woods and figure out where does this thing start? This thing being Trumpism or eventually the movement uh, against racial injustice or eventually or the Occupy movement. Where do these moments of political transformation and change, where do they start? They certainly don't start in Washington. And so and it just happens to be that I'm as a journalist I'm a little bit happier on the road kind of um yeah doing things like that and yeah. uh and so I went I decided I went to I would go to three places I know because that way I could judge change over time because if I went to new places which we do all the time as journalists that's a snapshot and that's valuable in it in on its own terms but it's very different than trying to gauge what is different now from how it was 50 years ago yeah and I went I happened to have these three places in my life that are very different in the sense that they provide a very different piece of what it feels like to be American in the 21st century. So Greenwich, Connecticut, which is this, you know, a wealthy place, which has always been in its own way, sort of an engine room of capitalism. You can begin yeah. to understand how capitalism, how, how the choices are made that shape the economy and why do people make those choices and what do they tell each other at the lunch table? And how do they think about their commitment to the state and to this to the nation? Because those are slightly different questions. Yes. And I, I wanted to understand how that was different today than maybe 30 or 40 years ago. And then Clarksburg, West Virginia, which is now often sort of shorthanded as Trump country in the press, but is a much, much more interesting thing than that. I mean, when I was a, a, a baby journalist there, it was all Democrats. I mean, in 1999, the congressional delegation was all Democrats, and the state house was controlled by the Democratic Party. Today, of course, it's been one of the most thorough political transformations anywhere in the country. The last Democrat in the congressional delegation is, as we all know, Joe Manchin. Yes. And how did that happen so fast, so thoroughly, and what was it also disguising? What were we missing? I wanted to understand. And that. what's the answer? I think part of the answer was that. Um, the decline of a sense of local connection and vitality created a vacuum in people's political lives, and they sort of attached themselves to the national political conversation. So, I mean, just as a practical matter, most of the little newspapers were drying up. They were losing that. I mean, David, you know what's amazing is that in 1960, when John F. Kennedy was running for president, he went down to West Virginia and he went to Clarksburg. And yeah. he not only did he go to Clarksburg, Jackie came to Clarksburg, Bobby Kennedy, oh, yeah. Teddy Another, Kennedy. Yeah. Well, that was sort of the the the, the, the main event in that uh, in yeah. that presidential race. He came there as a Catholic. He had to prove he, that he, Protestants he, would he, vote for him. Exactly. Catholic. 
It's right. a little bit like Barack Obama going to Iowa and proving totally. that white voters would vote for him. Yeah. And you know what's amazing? When he went down there, he appeared on local television in Clarksburg for half an hour and answered questions from people calling in. So there was this connection between the sort of the, the Mount Olympus of politics and people living real lives. And I spoke to folks at the Historical Society in Clarksburg and I said, tell me the other presidential candidates that have come here since 1960. And they said, well... We can't find very many. It appears that maybe Jesse Jackson came through once, but that seems to be it. Yeah. So there was a degree to which the party was partly through residential patterns. It was beginning to focus on on different parts of the country. West Virginia was going to lose it eventually, and they just kind of backed away. And so for cultural reasons, and we can go into this in more detail as much as we want, but West Virginia kind of swung hard the Republican Party. And I think part of this, let's, uh, in my view, and I talk about this in the book, is also the power of some of the political tools we were talking about before. I was really blown away. Spend time at the legislative session in Charleston, West Virginia, as I did there, and you come away with a very strong sense of how a small amount of money in a small state can go a long way. Actually, it was a operative for the Koch brothers political network who said that to me. He said, you know, it's amazing. In this state, you can come in with a small amount of money and you can, you can do a lot here. By which he meant you can spend on things like political advertising and very misleading forms of political propaganda. And you can make people think that their future is in, in absolutely inextricably tied up with things like the coal industry and that without the coal industry, there is no future. When in fact, there are a whole range of really serious economic ideas that could be a pathway. And then you get somebody like Donald Trump who kind of ambles into that moment and takes advantage of it. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. It's also true that this is a uh, dereliction on the part of uh, people on the other side of the debate yeah. uh, who moralize to the folks in places like West Virginia and tell them, you know, you, you owe it to the planet to stop doing what you've been doing for generations uh, and making good middle-class money doing it without offering a plausible answer as to how they're going to fare in this transition. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think there's some of that. You also return to Chicago. Yeah. And the south side of Chicago. And I should point out that you found really, really compelling mm -hmm. uh, characters to write about in each of these places who came to symbolize the uh, the transition. Talk about the south side. Yeah, I kind of felt like from a from a writing perspective, it, I, I was desperate to get away from abstractions. I mean, I was kind of like I wanted as much as I possibly could to try to drive home this story of America's experience as individually as possible. I mean, through individual households. And so I would try to draw these connections. And ultimately, it's possible between one part of the country and another. In the case of the South Side, I had an encounter, as you sometimes do as a journalist, with somebody that I never had met before. And he changed my whole understanding of the place. I was standing on the street. I was working on a story for The New Yorker in about early 2016. And a guy came up to me. I was writing about a little shrine of where somebody had been killed. And this is in Auburn Gresham. Sadly, uh, those shrines are very common. They're very common. And there's there's a kind of, I guess this is also a little bit of the photographer's instinct. I was just, I'm fascinated by the, by that phenomenon. I mean, these, these artifacts, these physical representations of tremendous suffering. And what does that tell us? What can you read from that? So I was writing about, writing notes about it. And, and a man came up and he said, who are you with? I said, I'm with the New Yorker magazine. And he said, uh, is that the one with the cartoons? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I used to read that in prison. And his name is Maurice Clark. And he is a guy who is almost my age. I mean, we're sort of, in some ways, you know, he was born a couple years before I was. And he's a very, very smart guy. And he had grown up in this neighborhood. He'd grown up actually a little further east, closer to the lake. And he had zero opportunities. I mean, you know, the thing that uh, I was struck by is he had a chance to go to Morgan Park High School, That's which right. is a really good high school on the south side. And But he couldn't go because he would have had to take the bus. That's right. There was no school bus to take him, and uh, his parents couldn't afford. And they said, you're going to go to the local high school instead. Yeah. And so he went to Fenger High, which is a 
high school with a lot of kind of a storied history. It's been the site of some violence in the last few years, especially that people will remember in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And and he got to Fenger. He had he could have gone to Morgan Park. He was a guy who was very good at math yes, in particular. Yeah, yeah. He used to follow his mom around the grocery store and he would tally up the bill in his head and he would calculate the tax before they got to the cashier because he liked to see if he was right. And all of a sudden he gets to Morgan Park. He gets to Fenger and it was it was a place in which they were at that point radically cutting costs in the school and it they sort of there was no supervision in the lunchroom and there was no programs left anymore and there's these really poignant letters that actually parents were writing to the school board saying you're gutting what is actually it, the basic requirements of a functioning high school and it's it's quite remarkable to go back and read those and the reason i think so much about those details is that i don't think you can understand somebody's life in that larger arc and his life ended up taking some pretty dramatic turns but you you can't understand that without thinking about that combination of his individual actions and the external factors that were surround him there are other figures uh this fellow uh chip scourin yeah. in, in uh greenwich who was a doctor uh who abandoned the practice of medicine and went to work for a hedge fund and just went and and made a fantastic amount of money and then did what too often we've seen, which is uh, cut corners, yeah. cheated, ultimately went to prison, emerged with better chances than Maurice Clark did when he went to prison for low-level drug That's dealing right. and then a, a, a violent and incident. And a violent incident, right. And then this fellow, Sidney Muller in yeah. Clarksburg, who uh, was a guy who returned from the wars yeah, and uh, was... Uh, broken uh, emotionally uh and uh, fell into opioids and I mean and and opioids and alcohol and and yeah. ended up killing four people in a kind of addled rage yeah um went to prison for life um you know three very distinct stories but all with you know varying kinds of tragic outcomes and all of them in some ways the result of uh, you know, an abdication on the part of our system. Uh, and, and a lot of them have to do with economics as well. Yeah. Yeah, that, that ended up being one of the spines that runs through a lot of this was my realization of how much the the opportunities and the constraints were defined by facts of our economic life of the last 40 years that we don't announce all the time. We just sort of say, well, this is the way it's going to be. This is the way, evidently, this is how it goes. I mean, at one point, I remember paying attention to some of the debate that was going on in Greenwich around income inequality. And there was somebody who was, was, it was a hedge fund manager who was saying, you know, we have to pay attention to this now. It's become a much larger issue. And he says, it's nobody's fault. It's just kind of, it's just the inevitable result of, of the way the economy is organized. And I thought that's such a subtle move, but actually, in its own way underneath that is a big mistake because no these are choices we've made and yes. we, the choices we made as a country and as voters and ultimately as a system and you talked about some economic decisions policy decisions that we made um particular uh, things that seem sort of dry uh and technical but yeah. how stock options were treated and used and how executive compensation suddenly became tied to stock options and uh it shifted the values of corporations as these executives really tried to run up profits at the expense of employees yeah i actually found sort of the the more i mean i would do it in the writing you have to be very careful how you do it you have to sort of do it in very very compact form where you sort of identify some esoteric bit of language but i find like the more banal the policy change the more amazing it is because that ends up having it's like the you know a pebble that goes into the lake here and the ripples extend outward for years and so if you take something like the decision to allow stock buybacks of companies or the decision to take banks from being private enterprises mm-hmm. to being public companies these are the kinds of things that are just you know buried in the esoteric detail of the american financial system but end up shaping the way people live the parameters of their lives and ultimately our cohesion as a country I've got a couple of other things I need to talk to you about, but just you finish with with stories of hope. People yeah. who are doing things in their community that are making a real difference and so on, but they don't necessarily speak to the macro forces that are really roiling 
our democracy roiling uh, our economy. So um, did did you do that just as a kind of to cleanse the palate or whatever? Did you? No, that was very deliberate, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, my view is the people who I gravitate to as people doing something really impressive and successful. By the way, one of the things that sort of just a matter of principles, I don't go into it looking for successes or failures. I always just try to figure out what's happening. And Mm -hmm. because I think if you pick just, I'm going to write a story about the successes, you're actually not really capturing the whole thing. It also, you arrogate to yourself the the right to say what it, what does success look like? Totally. Yeah. So, yeah. But so what I tried to do, I was really struck by how you could find examples of people doing things on a local level that was having a, a, a real impact on a local level. It was not abstract. I mean, if you go in West Virginia, there was this group of folks who were running in politics using a different kind of language. They, they're basically liberal Democrats, but they don't use that language. They don't talk about progressive policies as such because they know that language is poisonous. And meaning in West Virginia, people are just have become allergic to the language of progressive yeah. politics. But they've been able to pull people into wanting to run for office who wouldn't have otherwise wanted to do it. And they've gotten some people into government and they're going to do it again and they're going to do it again. And that's fascinating. And they do it by talking not about, not not using language that would be poisonous, but about water that's poisonous. Exactly right. Or other issues that touch, uh, that touch people's lives. Yeah. I, and, and I'm inspired by these stories and others that I see. I do think unless we deal with these macro forces, you know, it's going to be hard to turn this yeah. ship uh, around. But um, And two of the people who are going to have something to say about whether the ship turns or not are people you've also written about. One is Joe Biden. Mm. You were assigned to profile him for The New Yorker, and you turned that into a book, Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now. Talk about this moment mm. for Biden, because, you know, it, it was improbable. And I and he, he would remind me if he were here, I was a skeptic uh, that a guy, you know, when we, sure. when we named him, uh, as the nominee for vice president, we thought, well, one good thing is he'll be 73 when he's done. So he's certainly not going to run for president. <laughs> and we were right because right? he right. didn't run until he was 77. You know, it's amazing, David. I can't remember if you and I had a conversation about that, like 10 years ago or not, but I remember us, you telling me that. And I remember that was like baked into my understanding of him. Yeah. And yeah. of course, part of the Biden story is that he has this almost bizarre way of of foiling every expectation along the way every time you think all right this goose is cooked yeah and that could have happened in 87 it could have happened in 2008 it could have happened in 2015 and it, and somehow he manages to you've said some you said something interesting though which you've said something interesting which is that and I, just knowing him uh, somewhat well, mm. and observing him over 30, 40 years of politics, he started being uh, more successful when he stopped worrying as much about being successful, when he was more comfortable in his own skin and didn't look like a politician on the make. Yeah, yeah. But, but now we're, we, we are where we are. Uh, you know, the first few months were great. The, right. the honeymoon months, the virus was on the uh, on, in retreat because of the vaccines, uh, the economy seemed to be improving, uh, and things seemed in control. There was dignity and right. com- empathy restored to the White House and everything. Been a rough summer. Yeah. And now we're at this point where his signature achievements are- uh, In doubt. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so w- talk about this. If You, you may have to write a, another- volume or afterward to your story. Yeah. How is this how do you see this story evolving here? Well, I think it's it's a couple things have happened that have that have gotten together and to form this impression of this presidency that is now embattled. I mean, the one of the big differences was of course that the Afghanistan withdrawal did not go the way that the White House would have wanted. And you can say that- the, Although, yeah. although, and I want to ask you about this, that's not what he said. Yeah. That's not what he said. I mean, the fact is it was apparent to everyone that it didn't go the way they wanted. Uh, he had a major uh, talking point and achievement in that he did what he said he would do, which was withdraw the war. from Afghanistan. But it seemed to me that achievement was clouded by yeah. his unwillingness to acknowledge the other fact, which is the end didn't come exactly as we had hoped, and right. that, that was tragic and that, that was painful. I agree. And I think what we see why, from Why him, couldn't he? 
He is, and this will not shock you to hear, David, he is a very hard-headed guy. And he is a person who, in his own way, has actually gotten, at the same time that he's gotten less eager to please, that bumptious guy that that got in his way when he was younger, he's also now gotten fortified in his instincts that he says, you thought I was all wrong. You thought right. I couldn't win in, 26, right. in 2020, and I won. And you thought I couldn't, and and so that actually is. A and we should add thing. to that, you generals and you people in the Pentagon thought I was wrong twelve years ago when I said this was not going to end well, and I was right then too. Yeah, and that's a huge piece of it, and that's been growing in the back of his mind. I mean, as I remember speaking to President Obama about Biden's role in that process, and he was so determined back then to try to get out of. Afghanistan, and it wouldn't happen. And he felt like the Democrats were getting rolled by the generals. He, this is also goes back to his whole experience being in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He always felt as if Democrats were on their heels when it came to dealing with the Pentagon. So he sort of came to this with so much baggage that when the moment finally arrived, how to get out of Af- Afghanistan, on what schedule, why now, why on this, why does it have to be September 11th? Right. How do we do it? What do we tell the Pentagon about when they can come out, when they can, how do they s- sequence it? Those are the places where the mistakes happened because, and it's going to be a while before we really go in and understand everything that went wrong, but decisions about, okay, why did we leave Bagram when we did? Mm-hmm. Why did the, what were we honestly able to do on that period of time? Why did it have to be September 11th? And I think that this is the side of Biden that we didn't see in those first four months when he was sort of in his more restorative mode. Mm-hmm. He was the guy coming in and stilling the waters. I think he he was right about one very important thing, though, which is it was never true that if we just left 2,500 troops, that that would suffice. You know, the Taliban had eased off because uh, on the assurance of withdrawal, it would have taken as and you can see the number of troops that were needed just to withdraw uh, from the country thousands and thousands more troops. So he he was right about that. It would have been another quagmire. He identified something that is that is still true today, which is that you can't have half a war. And you can't say, okay, we're just going to stay there with this small force and that'll always... No, something would pull us back in. And part of what he was... Part of the reason why he was hard-headed about this and... And he can be very stubborn when he is digging in. I, uh, I've noticed that. <laughs> Part of it is because he really believes that there is a disconnect between how Washington talks about the sacrifices of war and how other parts of the country, places like Clarksburg, West Virginia, experience it. And you can say what you want about whether he overplays his connection to the military or not. Some people feel that way. But the truth is he feels that pretty deeply. And particularly, and Jill Biden feels that deeply. Their son, as we know, Bill, Bo Biden was... Uh, in the army, joined after 9-11, and they built that into their sense of themselves as a family. Yeah. So before we go, uh, just the other Joe, you've written yeah. about, uh, speaking of West Virginia, about Joe Manchin. Um, give me a, spin me on him. And, and, <laughs> so, and how do you think it ends with him? It seems to me that he he sort of put a open for business sign yeah. up saying, I'm ready to negotiate. It's not going to be $3.5 trillion. Probably not going to be $1.5 trillion, so let's go. You want to know the most interesting thing about Joe Manchin that people never talk about is that before he got into politics, he was a carpet salesman. That's the family business, Manchin Carpets, just up the way from Clarksburg, like 45 minutes. And he sold furniture. And when he was a teenager, and then he was in his 20s, he did it all the way into college and stuff. And when he, when he, you had to start on the delivery truck, and he hated the delivery truck because it was hot, and you had to deliver furniture, and it was a terrible job so he got finally to be able to sell and he would get people when they'd come into the store he would say particularly to guys he would say you gotta buy something otherwise they're gonna put me back on the delivery <laughs> truck you just gotta buy something i don't care what it's just something and there is an, a real analogy to his politics now when he says a number like 1.5 trillion dollars that is not because joe manchin has been sitting there crunching the numbers on excel he decided that that sounded a lot better than 3.5 trillion dollars and it sounds like he got something and a big piece of this, and I heard this over and over again, I was back in, in West Virginia, in Farmington, where he's from, talking to people about Joe Manchin's kind of political mindset. And the thing is, it's a, a lot about him being able to go home and say, oh, I got something. I beat back those Democrats with their 
quote unquote, extravagant demands. And so part of the process you see now is a guy like Joe Manchin, a salesman who's begun the process of negotiation. It's just started. It literally just started like a week ago. It basically just started a few days ago. And you believe they will land the plane? Yes. Mm -hmm. Evan Osnos, you are a uh, national treasure, one of the great journalists we have. This book really should be required reading Wildland, The Making of America's Fury. People can also catch you in The New Yorker on CNN, and we're happy to have you at the Institute of Politics today. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.